Amen. Good to see everyone. Good morning, brothers, sisters, friends. It is good to see you all. And again, I hope that you, are, you all are doing well. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, to Exodus chapter 4. And by the Lord's kindness, we have now come to the end of the burning bush narrative that started all the way back in chapter 3 of, of Exodus. So we have been here in this little, I think they call it pericope, for like five weeks. Um, but it has been certainly a great joy to, to do so. If you remember, starting out chapter 3, Moses is in the wilderness, tending his sheep, and it starts out pretty cool. It starts out pretty cool in the fact that we sort of don't expect this to happen, although we sort of know something is happening or going to happen because of after chapter 1 and chapter 2 has been building up to it. And so there's this suspense at chapter 3 that something has to happen. Forty years have passed. Another 40 years have passed. The Lord has to do something, and he does. He shows up in chapter 3 to Moses, who is now 80 years old, and the Lord confronts him on the mountain, Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai, same place. And it starts out amazing and miraculous, the way that God has spoken to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before him. God tells Moses that he has appointed him to be the deliverer of his people. Now, we, we know that because we know the story and we know that it's building up to it, but certainly we see in the text that Moses was quite taken off guard by that. Now, one might expect, though, getting to this place, that Moses sort of excited and thrilled at the prospect that the Lord God has revealed himself to him and has called him, has chosen him to this great and glorious work to set his people free. But what we have read in the narrative is he is anything but excited or thrilled. He comes back to the Lord with questions that eventually turn into objections. And at the end, it, it ends with a sort of a, a plea. And he asks first, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? There's some humility in that question, him understanding that he is not qualified, but the Lord promises his presence to him. And he asks him a second question. The Lord asks this, or Moses asks the Lord a second question. He says, he says they're, they're going to ask me. The people of God are going to ask me. Pharaoh's going to ask me, who sent me to you? And God mercifully answers him. And he defines himself to him as the great I am, the I am who I am, Yahweh, the Lord, the tetragrammaton, I am. Right? You see that capitalized in your Bibles, the L-O-R-D, capitalized. That's Yahweh, the Lord, his, his covenant name. And yet what is still... What would become even clearer to Moses and become clearer to us and the people of God is more and more what his name 
actually means as Exodus goes on. And last week, as we jumped into chapter 4, into Moses has a, has a third objection or question, and he tells the Lord, he's like, they're not going to believe me. The, the people are, are not going to believe me. They're, they're not going to listen to my, my, my voice, and, and they will tell me that the vision that I'm seeing was not really from God, that it was not true. And the Lord graciously responded to Moses. And he gave him three signs and three wonders to convince the people of his word. That he has really spoken. That he has sent Moses to be his deliverer. And that he, the Lord, is truly the Lord. Now, like we've seen throughout the scripture, as we talked about last week, the Lord has used miracles and signs to point to his instruction. And we, and we, we no longer look for signs and wonders because we have his revelation. We have his word. And the only sign that Jesus has left us, which, by, by the way, is not a small sign, it is his resurrection, the greatest of all signs. And today, we're going to hear two more objections from Moses. Yes, there is more. <laughs> Moses just keeps speaking. In Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. And then the Lord said to me, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Moses, O Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite, so that he can speak well? Behold, he is coming out to me. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and, and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be, be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do signs. And this is the word of the Lord and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. We see again in this passage the objections of Moses. And he flats out, he just lays it out, doesn't he, there in verse 13. Find someone else. As parents... If you're a parent and you kind of had some time at it, what, one of the things that you often demonstrate to your children as parents is not always our, um, our victories, but very often what we display to them and demonstrate to them, is our, to them is our failures. And if you don't realize that as a parent, 
then the job as being a parent is going to be way harder. And plus your children, by the way, they can see right through you. They can see those things. They're smart. They can see it. You're going to fail. And when you fail, most likely it's going to be in front of them. Or it's going to be to them, right? You're going to offend them or sin uh, against them. And the sooner we realize that this is sort of the relationship that we have with our children always, the easier it is to deal with it and cope with it. Now, not only are children smart, but praise God, children are also loving and they're forgiving. And that's wonderful. And that's wonderful for us to hear as parents because we are far from perfect. In fact, I hate even using that word. We are far from it. For example, you guys were waiting for that. For example, just this last week, I came downstairs. After the kids have got home from school, and I came downstairs to get a drink of water, something. And, and when I came downstairs, what I usually see and often see when the children come home from, uh, from school is I often see CMS. I see them come home and they pretty much just drop all their stuff all over the house, right? From one end of the door to the stairs, they, they just drop everything. Lunch boxes, bags, and shoes, and socks, and this and that. Um, and as I came downstairs and I saw that and I was walking to the kitchen to get a glass of water, I muttered under my breath something, you know, uh, children. You know, like, good golly, all, once again, got to clean them up, clean up again. And, and come to find out, even though it was quiet when I came downstairs, come to find out I was not alone. I was not alone downstairs. Our, our dearest little Kate was downstairs, and she was sitting at the table like she was supposed to, and she was doing her homework. The kindergartner had homework. How about that? And, and she heard me, what I said. She, she heard my, my, my mutterings and my, my frustration. And this is what she said to me. She said, I wish I could replicate her voice because it's this screechy, squealy, cute voice. But I won't. I will, I'll spare you that. And she says, Dad, do you wish you didn't have so many kids? Busted. <laughs> right? I mean, I was busted. Right? Here I am fuming in my, my righteous indignation of having to clean up another day and another mess over and over again. I was busted, and I knew it. And of course, you know, my frustration did not go, go to that level, and I was certainly able to answer her. And I said, no, Kate, I'm very happy, and I was thankful, and I was reminded of thankfulness for each of them. And I love them all, even with all of their mess. And this is what she said. She said, so you just wish we would just put away all our stuff and clean up after ourselves. And I was like, yes, Kate. We are all learning, aren't we? <laughs> we are all learning. And parenting can be aggravating. It can be frustrating. Because not only are we having to raise sinners, but we ourselves are sinners. And there's a lot of grace that we have to learn to, to give and give and be very thankful for the moments that we're able to plug in the gospel when we, are, uh, when we have wronged our children or we said something that we shouldn't have done. It is one, it is the, and I think you parents could agree with me, and we are not even close to being done yet, 
meaning not having more children, but raising our children, that you can agree with me that it is by far the most challenging thing that you have ever done. And yet it is also the most rewarding. Your job is nothing in comparison to raising children. And that is, that is glorious, and we're, we're, we're built for it. So don't let what I'm saying disparage our, our young Marys from having children or more children. Um, they're, they're certainly glorious things. But in a way, in re- I was thinking about kind of our relationship with children and my relationship as a parent. In a way, this conversation with Moses sort of reminded me of the kind of conversations that we have frequently, right? You're dealing with the kid's school or you're dealing with their reading or, or, or sports or grades or chores, everyday obedience, whatever it may be, picking up things, doing their chores, whatever. It often comes back to these kinds of objections. Yeah, but I can't. And of course, I remember as You know, as a parent, I'm remembering in my mind saying the same things to my dad and knowing my dad was like, it's coming to you, buddy. It's coming. And and I was thinking in my mind, this is the kind of conversation that's kind of happening between Moses and, and, and God. And eventually it kind of gets to the point in the conversation where it's just like, I I quit. I don't want to go. I don't want to do this. I'm not going to do this. And and that's sort of exactly what we hear from from Moses, especially in a sense, it's like the exact opposite of from what we heard Moses say in the beginning of chapter 3, verse 4. And I know it's been several weeks ago, but in verse 4, when God said, Moses, Moses, Moses replied in that very classical, biblical, Isaiah 6 kind of way, here I am. I mean, he said it. Here I am, but now to chapter 4, verse 13, it's here I am, but send anyone else. What happened? But what we also see in this passage, again, and we do this every single Sunday, is I want us to get our eyes, I want us to get ourselves and our hearts, our minds off of Moses and off of ourself and redirect them to the Lord. Because here's Moses, this is how Moses responds, and Moses responds this way because this is how Moses felt. And let's be honest, Moses had some good points. Moses had some good, good points. And sometimes we have some good points. Our our feelings have some good points, right? We have some real inadequacies about us. We have some real inabilities. We have real problems with not being gifted in certain areas. But what shines through this text again is not Moses and his problems, although they are there and we're going to address them. It is Yahweh himself. It is the Lord. And over and over again, it is the Lord that we must look to and that we must trust especially when addressing our deficiencies and inabilities and even disabilities. And the Lord shows us three things, I believe, from this passage. His provision, his providence, and his power. So first I want us to see the Lord's, uh, the Lord's provision for Moses. As he gives his, his next objection of why he can't go to, to Egypt. 
verse 10, Moses says, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. So let's, let's unpack this for a second. Moses now turns very personal. He turns very personal about him, himself, and he admits something that a lot of us would admit, that we are not good at public speaking. I am not good at public speaking, right? In all the ways, right, in all these kind of things, we could relate to in some way. Now, we don't know exactly why Moses says why he's unable to publicly speak or whatever. It could be psychological, right? It could be a thing where, where Moses was just scared to death right, from, from public speaking. And then it, just standing up in front of a group of people, he would get all choked up in, in front of a crowd. Maybe the issue was educational. Moses didn't know how to speak in, in public, right? Maybe he failed his public speaking course in college or something. Maybe it just wasn't his thing, right? Maybe he thought he was too old. After all, he's 80 years old, right? The, the low energy, the enthusiasm to be able to stand up in front of a, a group of thousands to address them and even to the court of Pharaoh. Or maybe in, in the case of Jeremiah, or it wasn't he was too old, but rather Jeremiah said, I am too young. I can't speak. I'm, I'm too young. And maybe he actually had, and this is what a lot of commentators believe, is that maybe he had an actual physical problem, some vocal, some real vocal issues. And maybe Moses had a, a speech impediment or, a, or a, a stutter or something like that. Maybe it could have been linguistic or verbal. Moses forgot how to speak Egyptian. Hey, I don't have to speak Egyptian anymore, and I would look like a fool going up to them and, and speaking. And, but the reality is, is we, we don't know what it is. So it's hard to say this is exactly what the issue is, but what we do know is that whatever the problem was, it was big enough for Moses to bring it up before the Lord. Right? It was a big enough of a fear, a big enough of a, of a problem, an inability or, or disability, whatever it was, that he needed to address that before the Lord. And if you read that back again, what he says, it even sounds a little accusatory to the Lord. It sounds like to, if this is what you wanted me to do, then why haven't you done anything thus far to fix it? And if you're not going to fix it, then I, I can't go. You know, I've been this way for a while, Lord. Why haven't you fixed my, my problem? But what I also want you to see here is that I think this is really important for us to understand is that to Moses, this, this speech thing, it is real, right? So we talked, we had words to this, that it's real. And this is something that is so real to him that he is terrified of it. And I think some of us can understand that. The fear of public speaking, can be terrifying. And it is terrifying. I think sometimes, whatever the inability can we can be, very, we can be keenly aware of our inabilities. We can, be very, we can be keenly aware. We can hone in so much on our inabilities and our, 
are disabilities that when we are in certain situations, we can become terrified by them. And we can let them have control of us. And this is why Moses says, here I am, send someone else. He had a real objection and real fear. So we're not, we're not denying the real objection or the, 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 the real fear. We're not denying the, the reality, and we want to, but we also don't want to be um, too focused on that problem either. Because here's Moses speaking to the great I am, right? Yahweh, the Lord, the creator of all things. And he says, I can't speak. I can't go. That's his objection to go. He's focused too much on the problem and less focus on the Lord himself. He thinks that, that, that he needs to be eloquent to go and to speak. But as we see, the Lord did not choose Moses because he was eloquent. In fact, it sounds like from this passage that it's for the exact opposite reason. He wanted not an eloquent man, but he wanted a man that would speak and tell the truth despite his inabilities. And the Lord's response to Moses reflects this. Again, hear the mercy of the Lord here toward him in verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And here, again and again and again, we hear the Lord's sovereignty, right? I mean, just running throughout so far. We're only four chapters into this thing. And how many times have we even said that the Lord is sovereign? What, a billion times? I mean, we said it so many times. It's because the Lord is showing him over and over and over again. And he's telling Moses, in my sovereignty, I will provide for this man. And he explicitly tells Moses of his sovereignty over creation. That he is not only sovereign over the whole, but he's sovereign over the small. He is sovereign over the macro and the micro. He is sovereign over the universe to the atom. He is sovereign and he has decreed in his sovereignty and he is directing every single bit, even your inabilities and disabilities and dis deficiencies. And to Moses and for us to hear very clearly, I made you. I made all of your abilities, I made you with all of your talents, I made you with all of your gifts, I made you with everything. I've made you with your inabilities, I made you with your disabilities. I already know these things. And so that is to be in a comfort to us as it is to be a comfort to Moses, that he is suffering even over our inabilities and disabilities so that we would trust in him. And that we would trust in his plan, we would trust in his purpose, and even we would trust in him that he will provide to overcome them if needed. And that is vitally important. And so hear this, that when we complain about our inabilities or our disabilities, we are insulting the God who has made us. We were made for his glory. And we should not imagine that our personal limitations somehow place a limit on God's ability to glorify himself through you and through me. 
Do you think that the Lord, Yahweh, did not already know about this problem that Moses had? Is, is God putting his foot, in, his foot in his mouth by calling Moses, who can't speak, to go speak? Boy, I have, a, I have an illustration that I'm struggling right now to say to y'all. If I should say it or not, I probably should. I'm not. I'll tell you. If you come ask me later, I'll tell you personally, but I don't want to say it on Never mind. And the answer to that question, of course the Lord didn't put his foot in his mouth. He knows. He's the sovereign creator, and that's what he's, he's telling him. And he has already taken everything into consideration about Moses. As he calls him into, the, into service, as, as he has done for each and every one of us, he has taken all of us into consideration. He has taken you into consideration with all of your inabilities and disabilities. He understands, he knows, and he overcomes them accordingly. And I love this because in Matthew 11, in the New Testament, we see sort of the same idea that Jesus says sort of the same thing that the Lord Yahweh tells Moses. When John the Baptist was in prison, he sent his disciples to Jesus, and he knows he was about to die, and he sends his disciples to Jesus, go ask Jesus, ask him if he is the one. Ask him if he is the Messiah. Is he really the one that we've been waiting for? And here's Jesus' answer to John's disciples. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. And what is that? He says, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. The evidence that Jesus is saying that he is the son of God, the waiting Messiah that John the Baptist has been waiting for is what? That he does what only God can do that he is God, and that he is sovereignly, he is the sovereign creator, and he provides accordingly for his people, according to his glory. And then in verse 12, we see how the Lord is graciously tells him how he's going to sovereignly provide. He says, now therefore go, right? So here's the command, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Essentially, what he is saying here is, Moses, I'm going to be your teleprompter. I'm going to put exactly what you say and what you are to do and how you say it. It's going to put it all here in front of you. You, you barely even have to think because I'm going to tell you everything and I'm going to teach you everything. Now think about how amazing that is. How glorious that is, that promise. He says, I will be with your mouth and I will tell you everything that you shall, you shall speak. So these, these are the things that I want us to understand about God here. See, first we see that if the Lord is Moses' sovereign provider and ours, then we must understand that it is the Lord who is going to save and deliver his people. Moses is the deliverer that is sent, he's the instrument, but, but throughout, that we see throughout Exodus, and even here, we see that it is the Lord who is doing all the work, who does all the work. 
Moses is weak. Clearly, we see that here. Jacob was weak. Abraham was weak. Isaac was weak. Joseph is weak. David was weak. They all had their issues. They all had their problems and sin, just like us. We, too, are weak. But it is the Lord God who is the Savior of his people, and he uses weak vessels for his glory. Now, Moses is a huge character in the Bible. I mean, isn't he not? I mean, Moses is a huge character in the Bible. I mean, he's, he's second only to Jesus himself. I mean, maybe you can think like maybe David. Yeah, he's, he's up there. Abraham, certainly Father Abraham. He's got a song. I mean, but then there's, but Moses, right? I mean, Moses. I mean, he, he comes with Elijah, right, to the Mount of Transfiguration. His role in salvation history is not to be diminished because he is the deliverer, the lawgiver, and the prophet. But look at him here. Look at him here in the, right before God at the, the burning bush. His weaknesses is, are exposed. His reluctancy is re exposed. His questioning and his ineloquency is exposed. But not the Lord. And brothers and sisters, that tells us, beloved church, it tells us that in our real weaknesses, that in our real disabilities and inabilities and where we think we are not gifted in certain areas, that God is still sovereign. And he still gives as needed. And we are still to be used as his instruments despite our weaknesses. Amen. And he uses us for his glory. Because he is the Savior, not us. Not you or not, and not me. So second, it also shows us in his sovereignty that his message is the power. Not in the way that it's delivered. His message is the power. Now in Moses' mind, and even in our minds today, we think that the power of a message is in the way that it's delivered. The method. The method has to get right. The delivery has to be perfect. The, 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 the production has to be just right. The mood has to be set. The music and the, the lights, the excellence of well-choreographed speeches and TED Talks and energetic with lots of charisma and getting real loud and real boastful. A real professional production is required because that's what's going to drive the message across. But what the Lord has given you and what the Lord has given me with all of our weaknesses and all of our qualities he's given us and the knowledge of this is that the power is not in us. The power is not in the method. The power is in his word. His power is in his word. It's not in the eloquency. He doesn't say, okay, Moses, I'll make you eloquent because that's the power. That's what you need. He says, no, the power is in my word. That's why he's like, I'm going to put it in your mouth. I'm going to teach you. And then he goes to, to Aaron. He's like, you're gonna, I'm going to teach you. You're going to teach him. And you're going to be his mouth. And we're going to speak because it's his word that's important. Because that's what's powerful. Listen, God did not give you and give me a YouTube video about the Bible. He didn't communicate a YouTube link. He gave us a book. 
How boring is that in the eyes of the world? But how powerful it is for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see the power of the gospel. Not a production. That's the power. Brother, when you preach, that's the power. When you all share with your friends, with your family, the word of God, what you share in the gospel, that's the power. And if you stutter, and if you stumble, and if you feel like they're just going to make fun of you because of the way you sound, praise God. Because you're not the power he is. But it does get better. The power is the word itself. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for Christ did send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom right the 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 wise ways the speech the rhetoric of the world in arguments <laughs> lest the cross of christ be emptied of its power why because the power is not in paul's eloquence but the power is in the word itself for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing it's folly to them. But to those who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. He goes on to say in verse 22, For the Jews demand a sign. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach what? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, those who are his people, those who are of the elect, both Jew and the Greeks, Christ, the power of God, wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and weakness of God is stronger than men. The sisters, in the word of God, we preach Christ. And Christ is the power of God and because he is the word of God. His word is our power. And in his sovereignty, despite our inabilities, weaknesses, or perceived weaknesses and problems, he shows us that he gives us something far greater, and he has provided his word. The second point this morning, and once again, I think we could be received this encouragement here, is by acknowledging his kind providence. In verse 13, Moses flats out says what's in his mind and what's in his heart. He says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Now, he, he knows he's speaking out of order here. He knows he's speaking out of order. That's why he says, please, right? Please. And he also makes it sound spiritual. Please send someone else. I want someone to go, just not me. Literally, what, what he here is, Lord, send whoever you will. So that, that even sounds even more spiritual. Lord, send whoever you will, even though the Lord already told him like, what, four times? I'm sending you? It's you, Moses. And several times, right? And he's casually pushing the responsibility off to someone else. And against that stubbornness, we see we, we have the backdrop of the Lord's response in verse 14. It says, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, Levi? And I know he can speak. Behold, 
He is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now, first, I want us to deal with the phrase, the anger of the Lord. Because what sounds like is the Lord has just lost his cool with Moses. And, and the Lord just sort of had a burst of anger and fit of rage, kind of like when you leave the gas grill on just a little bit too long before you light it, or your lighter is clicking, and finally when it does, it's like, whoosh! Like there's this flash burst of anger of the Lord. And when we, when we read that, we, want to, we sometimes want to think that that sounds like us. That, that the Lord is emotionally driven like us, like us. And if he's emotionally driven like us, then can he really be sovereign? Right? That's a big question. Now, sometimes in our attempts to understand God... We can define him in such a way that, yes, they're very helpful, but they also cannot comprehend the fullness of the majesty of God. I'll just give you an example. Um, and we've, I believe we've already read this, is that it's in the 1689. It says that God is most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passion. Without passions means that he's with, sounds like, that he's without emotions. Meaning his emotions that, that, are, that are guided by, by his responses. Now, here, Mo, the Lord gets angry with Moses. And clearly that is a, an emotion. And it even sounds like a passion. So here's near where we need to be careful with our systematic theology. Although good. Systematic theology is great, it's good, it's faithful, it's helpful. 1689 is a wonderful, wonderful confession. And yet it still, it still does not comprehend the fullness of the Lord. This emotional response to Moses as it is written is to help us to understand the displeasure of the Lord. It's to help us understand the displeasure. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that God uh, freaked out or lost his cool or had a fit of rage, sort of like in the ways that we do, but it's to help us to understand. It's to help us to understand that the Lord was displeased with, with Moses. The Lord did not ebb and flow from every external circumstance. We would be toast if he did. But what this is telling us is that we should not think that God is unmoved or unfeeling because he deeply cares about right and wrong. He deeply cares about obedience and disobedience. He deeply cares about holiness and unholiness, i.e. the example of the cross. If he didn't, why would he send his very son to the cross? Moses' persistent reluctance turns to, to this final plea of not wanting to go. Even though the Lord has called him over and over and told him to go, he has provided for him, he has shown him, and he has given him his name and his authority and these signs and wonders to work. And so if that's the case, then can we not, in some sense, sympathize? And this is why it's written that way. Can we not sympathize and understand the kind of language that is written here that the Lord was angry with Moses? And that he was displeased. And secondly, coupled yet with the Lord's anger, right after it, 
coming right up after the Lord's anger is this gracious response. It's not in, again, back to the parent relationship I was talking about in the beginning. It's not in the way of, well, if you're not going to do it, then I'll do it. Well, if you're not going to go, I'm going to go. I'll find someone else. I'll get your sister, whatever it is, right? It's not in those angry moments of reaction, but we see God's gracious response in dealing with Moses. He, 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 he deals with them in a way that we see in the second verse, or the second part of verse 14, and that he sends Aaron. He sends Aaron. And what's gracious about it, he doesn't send, who's the guy that Bill says that's his anonymous guy? Joe Schmuckatelli. He doesn't send Joe Schmuckatelli. He sends Aaron, his brother. He sends Aaron, his brother. And he sends Aaron, his brother, who is a Levite that can speak. He can help you. He's going to help you. Now, now this is God's providence here. This is God's gracious providence being shown to Moses, meaning the Lord's foresight and his foreknowledge and his sovereignty that has all come together in preparing beforehand for whatever the needs his people have. And the coming of Moses to, to Aaron is, is not this miraculous divine intervention, like all of a sudden he sends a signal to Aaron, like, all right, Aaron, now you're going to go. Or, or this is a response into because God really didn't take an account because Moses couldn't speak too well. No, God had already been preparing Aaron. Aaron is already on his way to meet Moses. And Moses providentially, long before, has been prepared with the necessary gifts. And now he is emerging from the shadows. Aaron is already someone you know and you trust, Moses. He was born before you, and he's your brother. And he's a, he's a good speaker who is, who is qualified, and he has the authority to speak as a Levite. And lastly, Moses Let's just say that, what does it say about their relationship? It says he is going to be glad when he sees you. How sweet that is. And what is God doing? Providentially, God is caring for Moses and his kindness, giving him what he needs. The Lord knows Moses. He knows his condition. He knows his reluctance. He knows his sin. He knows his inabilities. He knows his disabilities. And he has providentially not only prepared Moses, providentially prepared Aaron. Brothers and sisters, this is why we say the hand of the Lord has been with us. Because the Lord has gone before us and has cared for us and prepared for us and we can see his hand move. And then we hear the Lord explain how their relationship was going to work. This is how the, the working relationship is going to work between Moses and Aaron. And what he's showing us is explaining how prophecy works. He says, you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Now, God speaks, prophets listen, and then they say exactly what the Lord has said, literally word for word from their mouth. And in this case, Moses is learning to be a prophet, right? He's learning to be what a prophet is. 
And he's going to tell Abraham, or he's going to tell, excuse me, uh, Aaron, the word of God. He's going to tell Aaron the words that God speaks to him so that Aaron will proclaim it. And Aaron will proclaim it word for word as God, as if God was telling Aaron himself. Now, but in this, I want us to see the very beautiful promise that the Lord makes to, to Moses. And how it sounds so much to a promise that he has made also to us. He says, I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and teach you both what to do. Now, we know he's talking to Moses and he's talking to Aaron as well. But these same kind of promises come through the New Testament and the transmission of God's word through the apostles. But also to individual disciples, as we go, we, we speak of Christ. And we, we do not speak authoritatively prophets. We don't speak authoritatively like the apostles, but we speak with the same presence of God that he will be with us. Again, Jesus says in Matthew 10, he says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious on how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That is glorious. By his grace, brothers and sisters, he has indwelled in us his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit to guide our words and to teach us what to say when we need to say it. And again, Jesus says the same thing in, in John. John writes a little differently. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. He will be with us in our words, our speak. And isn't that amazing? And God in his providence will meet us in those needs as we need them. And the last point, I'm going to make it short, is that he has given us his power. And he's given us his power in to do what we have been called to do. And at the end of the whole saga here at the burning bush, the Lord Yahweh gives Moses one last command. He says, and take, your hand, take in your hand this staff with which you will do the signs. And, of course, we remember last week the staff, right, the shepherd's staff, that, that ordinary stick that was one step away from being firewood, right? The one that he picked was already told to pick up and to throw it on the ground. It's no, it's no magic wand or anything like that. And he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and then he picked it up, and it became, he picked it up by the tail, and it became a staff again. And the Lord tells him to pick it up, take it with you, because this will be a sign. This will be what you'll use to, to do the signs. This, again, is a symbol of the Lord's authority. The staff is a symbol of the Lord's authority and power. And we shouldn't overlook this last command. It's actually bringing all these promises of God together for this very terrified man. And it's showing us that, that God's providence has anticipated and prepared all for Moses' need, including him his power. The God who will give him his word to speak and will speak for him and is sending Aaron to speak for him. 
has put himself into the hands of Moses by the staff to show the signs of the Lord, to confirm the word of the Lord to his people and to all Egypt and then to all the world. The staff was to be a thing in his hand as a sign of assurance to Moses the Lord's presence with him. That the Lord's presence is with him in power so that he would continue to act and believe. So the question, what, what does that mean to us? Do we need to be carrying around sticks and tools and emblems and icons? Do we need to have crosses around our to, to to understand and remember that God is with us and the power of God is with us? How is God and the power of God manifested with us now? You see, we've been given something greater than a stick. We've been given something far greater than even in our own abilities and our own disabilities. The power that we have been given is the power of his message. Again, we have been given his word. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For it is the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is the power of God? What is the power of God that he's saying here in 116? Well, it's the message of salvation. Back to the top. It's the very thing that the Apostle Paul is not ashamed of, and we are not to be ashamed of, and that is the gospel. The power of God, then, as the gospel is leveraged, right? It's leveraged to save man from their sins and death, to be reconciled to him and given eternal life. We are completely unable, as we've said from the beginning, we are completely unable to change ourselves. We are not our own saviors. We are not the saviors of others. We can't save ourselves. We are hopelessly dead in our sins outside of Christ. Yet, despite man's complete inability, the Bible has shown us over and over again that it is the Lord's supernatural power in the gospel to save sinners. This is why we don't take up staffs. This is why we don't have icons. Well, for many reasons why we don't have icons, but this is one of them. We take the gospel, the power of God, and Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians verse 7. But we have this treasure. And the treasure that he's talking about is the gospel itself, the message of salvation. He says, but we have this treasure, that is the gospel, in jars of clay. And what does he mean by that? Well, yeah, think of a jar of clay. Think of a glass jar or a vase or, or a pot. And you think about how it's a vessel, it's to be used to something, it, it holds something, but that vessel can be broken, that vessel is weak, it can, it can fall down, it has its disabilities, it has its inabilities, but it also has the capability to do what? To hold that treasure, to hold that treasure. Well, what does he say? He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, meaning it's in us to do what? to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. The power of God, the symbol that's in his hand, this staff, was not a symbol of the power of Moses as a magician. It's a power of the symbol of Yahweh. God has spoken, and he will set his people free. 
and for us. The power of God to change men, the power of God to set us free is not in the eloquence of your speech or how we talk or how talented you are, but it is in the gospel. And the evidences of that is what Paul says here. We're just the weak vessels. We're pots. We break. We go under the earth, right? We, 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 we break away. We break down. But the message is the power. The power belongs to God. And Paul says, he can, verse 15, he says, For it's all for your sake, so, it, so that as grace extends more to more people, that it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. The power by which he has given us by his gospel, brothers and sisters, is for the glory of God. And that each and every one that the Lord calls himself and saves and redeems, that is for the glory of God. And as broken down vessels, as little vessels of jars of clay, having this treasure and sharing this treasure, we rejoice as well and give glory to God and we bring thanks that it may increase thanksgiving and gratitude to the Lord. We have been given this glorious gospel to proclaim. Though may being weak, though may failing, though may wasting away, the same, full, the same powerful gospel that what renews us day by day is the message by which we proclaim. The step given is his word, and we proclaim the gospel and the sign of its truth and the sign of its authority once again is the one that Jesus gave us, the sign of Jonah, and that is his resurrection. That's why we can proclaim it as true. And so my hope this morning is that as we think about the task that we have set, what we have set before us and being faithful with the message of the gospel, that not only as the church, but as individual parts of the church, with all of our flaws, with all of our inabilities and disabilities or perceived things, that, brothers and sisters, you would be encouraged by the word of God, that you can trust in his sovereignty, and that he will provide and will meet he sees fit so that we can be faithful to our calling to proclaim the gospel. And that we would also be reminded of his providence at work in our lives. And we can trust that he will lead us and guide us by his Holy Spirit. And lastly, we would be encouraged by the power of God that we proclaim the gospel. For we do not proclaim ourselves, but we proclaim Jesus Christ. And with that, may all of our attitudes and desires be with the gospel. And that we would say with no stipulations, with no reluctance, just alone, here I, here I am, here am I. And all of God's people say,